So I want to ask you as, uh, as we turn, and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me now to Matthew chapter 5, the question, what is worship? What is worship? This is an incredibly important question for the church. And it's an incredibly important question for the church because worship is our number one task. Worship is our number one task. And so what comes to mind when you hear the word worship? Do you think of singing? So I was listening to Christian radio this week. I heard a DJ say, I'm so glad you could be here to worship with us. I'm all for Christian radio. I'm not sure it's done, some, done us a whole lot of favors in terms of thinking about what worship is. Worship... And part of the reason I've been thinking about this is because we're looking at what does it mean to hire a worship pastor? What comes to mind when you think of a worship pastor? What do they do? Do they, do they play music? Because after all, music is worship. And so we sing some songs. And when we have a break and we do other things, and then we say, hey, let's worship again, do, do we mean that only singing is worship? I don't think it is. In fact, I would say you could, you, you could worship with great emotion. Let, let me rephrase that. See, this is where it betrays myself, where I betray myself, where I'm guilty of this. You could sing with great emotion and fervor and passion and do it in deadness. Because it doesn't matter how much through music, which is not a bad thing, music, I mean, you want to see how powerful music is? I hate horror movies. I don't, I don't like them. Go home, though, pick any horror movie, turn it on, and then mute it. And see how scary it is without any music. And you'll see the powerful effect that music has in our lives. And I would say that's a God-given effect. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a wonderful thing. But you can, you can incite and whip up emotion through motion, through music, through visuals, through lighting, through many things, none of which are inherently bad. I'm not criticizing any of those things. And have that emotional experience be done in deadness. If we're never spending time with God in prayer and, and in his word, if we're comfortable with sin. Th those experiences, as emotional as they might, may be, they may not be worship. Because worship, worship is, is responding, I would say, with two things to the revelation of who God is and what he has done. It is, it is responding to God. This is my definition of, of reverence. I'm taking a, or uh, my definition of worship. I'm taking a worship class as I'm trying to finish up my master's degree right now, a Christian worship class. And, and as this class has gone by, um, we've had to refine our own definition of worship. Here's my definition of worship. Worship is responding to the truth of who God is and what he has done with reverence and joy. With reverence and joy. 
If it's joyful but not reverent, if we reduce God to being like us, just a pal, a buddy, a servant, a, 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 a friend, all of those things might be true, but there, God is so much more than that. Go ahead and throw that slide back up, Alex. I want to leave it up there for a few minutes uh, or a few seconds. If all those things are true but there's, but, and we, we, we have joy in God, but we don't have reverence for God, that's a problem. In fact, uh, the number one, if I'm remembering correctly, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, the number one word in the New Testament that gets translated worship for us is proskuneo, and it means to bow down before. And as I've been working on writing a New Testament, a paper on New Testament worship, worship in the New Testament, what, amazed, what has amazed me is how much, even in the New Testament, the act of bowing down is associated with worship. It is to prostrate oneself in reverence before God. This could be done physically, but usually the physical action follows an emotional response. I think it was Kevin DeYoung who said the most frequent res- uh, response to coming face-to-face with God in Scripture is coming face-to-face with the floor. And he's so right. And it's reverence. But it's not just reverence. It's joy. When we're in awe of who God is and then joyfully respond to that, that is worship. And the reason I say that is because it's amazing to me how much, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Matthew, how much Jesus illustrates the kingdom in these ways. One of the most simple parables, I think it's a a one-verse parable, the the kingdom of God is like a man who, upon finding a, a pearl of great value in a field, sells all he has and buys that field. Now I left two verses out, or two words out. Did anybody pick up on what two words I left out? With joy. That he sells all he has with joy and buys that field. With joy. Worship. Worship is the reverent and joyful response to the knowledge of who God is. And so what you do with your family today will be worship. What you do at work tomorrow will be worship. What you, uh, what you do um, as you recreate will be worship. Everything is worship. Everything declares the worth of something. Why do I have that slide up there? Because I just thought it captured this so well. Worship is the response to who God is that says, not only are you altogether lovely and altogether worthy, because those two lines represent who God is in himself. He is lovely. He is worthy, whether we understand him to be or not. He doesn't need our knowledge of his worth and worthiness and beauty and loveliness in order to be those things. It is not us that makes him worthy. It is not us that makes him lovely. He is those things in and of himself. And if nobody had ever recognized that, he would still be lovely and worthy. But worship happens when we recognize those things to us. When we say, not only are you altogether lovely and altogether worthy, but you're altogether lovely and altogether worthy to me.
And when that is the heart of our worship, whether it's praying or preaching or singing, that is what family devotions, personal quiet time, that is what, uh, that is what worship is. My encouragement to you is to worship daily, to get in God's word and read until you've worshiped, until you see that he is not only lovely and worthy, but that you see he is lovely and worthy to you. With that uh, aside being said, let me, uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word as an act of worship today, as we pray as an act of worship today, as we gather at our quarterly ministry update after uh, services today to, um, to consider not only the business of the church, but the, especially the ministry of the church, and, and as we consider what we're going to do in terms of hiring and, uh, and staffing and budgets and uh, finances, but also worship and music and uh, Worship not just by means of music, but worship in general. Lord, we, uh, we ask your blessing on that time. Lord, we want to give you praise this morning for Miles Rotman as he is now home and that you have answered our prayers and, and that he's been released from the hospital. Lord, we know that there is certainly no doubt recovery still to be had, but uh, we just pray that you would uh, continue to give him strength and help him to recover and recuperate. Lord, we pray for Andrea as well as she cares for him, especially with the, the surgeries she's had on her hands and the difficulty that those surgeries have, have been. Um, and, and just uh, as she cares for him, would you give her relief from pain and strength and ability to care for him as well, Lord, we thank you for Matthew and Nicole as they've opened their home and are helping to care for them as well, Lord. We just pray that there would be a great blessing to them in that uh, as well. In fact, uh, it just reminds, their willingness to do that reminds me of Philippians 2, even as I read it this morning, that there is great joy in serving, in serving one another. And so I pray that you would give them joy in that and endeavor as well. Lord, we want to pray for Ted and Renati Rubish and continue to pray for them as they continue to ministry in Sri Lanka. We thank you and praise you for uh, the billions of dollars that India has poured into the economy there with, the, with all the political unrest that has gone on and the, uh, the difficulty of getting uh, aid with, uh, with lack of a functioning government as it should be anyways. And, and so we thank you for that. We do continue to thank you that uh, Ted and Renati's needs are well met for. We continue to ask that in the midst of that, you would help them to be a light in that situation and to point to what is truly valuable, Lord, that you would, um, that you would use them to show people that, uh, that Christ is the bread of life. And no matter how much we hunger or thirst in this life, uh, that we can be satisfied fully and ultimately in him. Lord, as, uh, uh, as the reports from UNICEF are coming that, that, uh, childhood malnourishment is uh, on the rise there, Lord. We pray that you would uh, help that, that money that's going in in, in Sri Lanka there to, um, to help uh, take care of those kids that need food. And again, Lord, I pray that you would cause your church to step up and that you would use the rubishes in that as well to care for the people around them. Uh, and, and Lord, that, uh, that your church there might be shown and seen to be salt and light. Father, as we uh, open your word now and look to it, and, and as we see what is so countercultural to, uh, to our, our, or not just countercultural, counter natural to our thinking, 
Would you help us to be submitted to, uh, to you as our designer, as the one who knows what is best and who is seeking our happiness and our good. And may we surrender our thoughts of what might make us happy to yours. So do much in us to glorify yourself that we might be worshipers through word, through song, through prayer, uh, through all that we do, through our fellowship, Lord. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn our attention now to the, the text. My thanks to uh, Andrew Gowen for stepping in last week and reading the Sermon on the Mount in my absence and illness. I hope that it was a profitable exercise for you all. Let's look here again at the opening words of Jesus in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1 through verse 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's been interesting this week, excuse me. It's been uh, interesting this week to watch the news and see not only England or the UK or Europe, but the whole world watch with rapt attention over Queen Elizabeth's death and the newly kinged crown, or crowned king. And, and all of this has been televised, and it's televised because people are interested. There, are, uh, there, there have been ascensions, not yet a coronation. There have been speeches, and we're all watching. I think the whole world, in many ways, is fascinated by royalty. We make movies about them. There's no shortage of movies about even just British royalty or TV shows or, uh, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's very, very common. We listen to their speeches. We watch them on TV. I remember how excited the whole world was when uh, Kate Middleton, uh, a so-called commoner, though probably from an upper middle class family, or not probably, but was, married Prince William. And it was this fairy tale story of a commoner become royalty. We watch the struggle and the strife and the division. And really, not just that, but what we're seeing this week in England is rare indeed. Of course, certainly not only rare in that we have not seen a new monarch come to the throne there for 70 years, but rarely have we, if ever, seen in the same week a new head of state and a new head of government being appointed in England. Uh, it's it's a, a, quite an interesting time. Uh, her, her, uh, her coronation, or his coronation rather, is not likely to be so, till sometime next year. In fact, after uh, Queen Elizabeth's ascension to the throne, it was a full year and a half before her coronation. 
And it will be interesting to see, by the way, because the whole thing is built around biblical imagery of a king or a queen as in authority under God. It's, it's interesting that uh, the, the, there, is a, uh, there will be a ceremony that will be behind a curtain. It will not be available for us to see between a uh, probably a, a bishop or who knows what it is in the Church of England there uh, at, at the coronation of the king where, where uh, the, the song being played, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who's, or the, the person who wrote it, but it'll be a, a piece of music called Zadok the Priest, which is biblical imagery from the appointment of Saul, I think it was Saul, uh, in, in, uh, in the Bible. I mean, the whole thing, this is why most of the world, by the way, calls their leaders ministers, because they understand government to be a ministry of God, that God has appointed ministers. But that is not my point. My point is that we watch, and we watch with rapt attention, and we're excited. And when that coronation happens, whenever it is, people will pay attention, maybe even more so than they are right now. How cool would it be to meet royalty? Jennifer shared a story with me today of some American tourists who were in Scotland uh, and, and uh, met the queen and had no idea. We're fascinated, asked, asked her, have you ever met the queen? And she's like, no, but this guy who was her bodyguard, she meets with him all the time. And they're like, well, can you take our picture? And they had the queen take their picture with her bodyguard. He then took the camera and took a picture of the queen with them, and she said, I, want, I would love to be a fly on the wall when these Americans get that film developed and somebody tells them who's in that picture with them. We would love to meet royalty. Some friends of ours, in fact, uh, a friend of ours took a trip with her grandmother who was from uh, England, back to England, and had the opportunity on a street as she was walking along to meet the queen. And we go, hey, that would be cool. And it would be cool. What about not just meeting royalty? What about being royalty? People in line, people are waiting in line, by the way, for 30 hours to get a 30-second look at the closed casket of the queen. People line up to see royalty. And as we see them, stand for 30 minutes to get a 30-second look at the queen. It begs the question of us, what do we do with the empty tomb? Are we looking? Are we waiting in line? Are we excited to open our Bibles and hear and see and meet with the king of kings? Because this is the Matthew, or this is the Jesus that Matthew presents us with. This royal king whose ascension to the throne was, uh, was shown to us at his baptism, whose coronation will happen at, on Palm Sunday as he enters as the conquering victorious king. And here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we get the king's first speech. We get his royal address. We get to meet not only with the king, but with the king of kings who not only calls us to meet with him and to know him and to enter his kingdom, but to join his family. To become royalty. To become sons and daughters with the king. 
to become heirs and, and co-heirs and brothers to Christ, the King of kings. Who, who is not a king who you need to make an appointment to meet with, nor who you might hope to meet with on the street, but to those in his kingdom is always within earshot. We can meet with the king. We can join not only his kingdom, but his family. And his first order, the king of kings, back to Jesus, as he, opened, or as he gives us this royal declaration in Matthew chapter, chapters 5 through 7, is to tell us how to be happy. I think this begs the question of us, do we understand that about Jesus? Do, do we, is it lost on us that his first order of business is to tell us how to be happy? After all, that's what the word blessed, blessed means. Happy are those. Is our view of him repressive? Outdated? When he tells us what marriage is, when he tells us uh, th- that, that children are a blessing, not a mere healthcare issue, when he tells us what roles and responsibilities are in relationships, in the church, and in the home. When he tells us that, that, that commitment to the church is more valuable than entertainment. When he tells us that serving is better than being served. When he tells us that, that entertaining ourselves with sin doesn't produce happiness. Do we see those things as restrictive from an outdated and antiquated God? Or do we see them as coming from a loving Father who desires our happiness? His first order of business is to tell us how to be happy. There was a 2011 Wall Street Journal article that said, Don't envy the super rich, they're miserable. And about the same time, there was another article I saw. I couldn't find it, but I remember the headline crystal clear. It read, America's most wealthy, least happy. See, the world tells us that if we're wealthy, we'll be happy. If we're influential, we'll be happy. If we, have, uh, if we can retire early, we'll be happy. That our portfolio, our relationships, our power, our influence, our YouTube followers, our, our, our whatever else it may be, sex, alcohol, drugs, any number of things are the things that will make us happy. And in Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon saying, look, I tried them all, and in the end, it's all vanity. None of them brought me happiness. Jesus is showing us how upside down his ways, compared to our perspective, of happiness are. But it's because sin has turned everything upside down. It has made everything miserable. It is the cause and the source of all suffering and heartache in the world. And so Jesus' first order of business is to show us how in his kingdom to live in a right-side-up fashion so as to be happy. 
So let's look now at the next two upside-down ways to seek happiness in the kingdom. Three weeks ago, it's been a minute since we've been in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but I'll just, by way of reminder, remind us that uh, th- three, three weeks ago, four weeks ago now, we saw first, and these three, two points are in the slides there, we saw first that bankruptcy gains us the kingdom. Go ahead and move that forward, Alex. I think we've got point number one on there because there's blanks in there. There we go. Perfect. Jesus says the first way to happiness is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. That it is those who understand their depravity. It is those who understand their sinfulness. It is those who understand their need of a Savior, their need to be redeemed, who, who inherit the kingdom. And I would remind us as we continue that it is only here in verse 3 where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, repeated in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the only two present tense promises. The kingdom is ours now. It it can be possessed now. You can be welcomed in as a citizen, and not only as a citizen, but as a member of the royal household in the kingdom of Christ now. We We don't take full possession of it, but this is a promise we do not await for. The rest of the promises that unfold through the Beatitudes the, the ways to be happy are all future promises. And the next one we saw is that mourning gets us comfort. Mourning gets us comfort. As we see there, mourn your sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we declare spiritual bankruptcy and mourn the sin that has brought so much misery in our lives, God himself is the one who comforts us. Number three, the third way to happiness is to cultivate gentleness. Cultivate gentleness. Look with me at verse five. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. From an earthly standpoint, We often think, and probably not just think, but experience the reality that it is the the belligerent that inherit the kingdom. That the more belligerent I get, whether it be with the police officer that pulled me over, or the, the doctor who won't do what I want, or the spouse who doesn't seem to be serving my idols, the, the child who is not making me feel the way that I want to feel or is not treating me the way that I want to be treated, we think that the more belligerent we get, the better off we'll be because after all, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And Jesus flips that notion on its head here and reminds us that that it is the gentle, the meek who inherit the earth. And meekness, it's hard to define. It's hard to define. I can remember in fifth grade in my Christian school, meekness being defined as power under control. And yet even that does not uh, capture the idea of what meekness is. It does not mean weak. In fact, it can't mean weak. Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And if you know anything about Moses, we know that he was not weak. So meekness cannot mean weakness. Meek also does not mean servile. So what does meek mean? I think to understand the idea of meekness, we have to understand that meekness encompasses both gentleness and self-control. And it doesn't have to do with one's power or strength 
or might. It doesn't mean that you don't have power or strength or might. It doesn't simply mean that you can control that. It means that you are in control of that and that you are gentle. Meekness is being in control of one's emotions and not being driven by them. Certainly, the cross of Jesus Christ is the plainest place to see this. Where where the author, creator of heaven and earth, the the one whose ability, and and forgive the rabbit trail uh, here for a moment, but uh, my other class right now in seminary is Hebrew, and and I was translating Genesis 1, 1 through 8 earlier this week. That was the assignment. And it amazed me in the Hebrew the strength of what it means that God spoke and the simplicity of the language. That Jesus merely speaks, and we, we know clearly from the New Testament that Jesus is the one who spoke all things into existence, that he, he speaks, and it is. This, this, the, the power of the word of Christ is amazing. There are two great battles that are attempted to be had against the king of kings in Revelation, but no battle ever happens because all Jesus, the imagery presented to us there is that a sword comes out of his mouth. Great armies line up to do battle against the king of kings. He speaks and they're obliterated. The voice of God is powerful. And what was he on trial? Silent. He didn't open his mouth. Quiet. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Let them put a crown of thorns on his head and a bag over his face and beat him to no end and force him to carry a cross to the top of a hill where he would allow them to put him on the cross. He reminds us in John that nobody takes his life from him, that he lays it down of his own accord to be executed. Buried, and then rises again three days later victoriously. Immense power. So much power that the grave could not hold or keep him, yet entirely under control. Not controlled by his emotions, even when he goes into the temple and drives out the money changers, it astounds me the control there. He sees them, he gets a whip. Now, it doesn't just say that he gets a whip, and he certainly didn't have a whip. He fashioned one. He went and made it. This is absolute control. And he goes and drives out the animals and the money changers until he gets to the birds. And what does he do? He lets them out of their cages. This is not the imagery of a guy who's out of control. This is not a guy either who's like a genie in the bottle. Absolute power itty-bitty living space. No, he is meek. And the one place in Matthew 11 that he tells us what he's like, he tells us that he is gentle and lowly of heart. He's not a guy driven by his emotions, certainly a man who had emotions, but he is in control. Immense power, not only in control, but wielded gently. In fact, the Greek word for meek was used to describe soothing medicine. 
which makes us ask the question, what is your presence like to others? It really forces me to ask this question. Is your presence at church, at home, with your spouse, with your children, abrasive or soothing? What does your presence do to people? When you leave somebody's, you know, presence, do they think, man, that was so comforting, I, 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 I need more time with them? Or do they think, oh, I'm so glad for the break? Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British physician turned pastor, brilliant man. He said, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. When somebody treats you badly, is your immediate response, well, I deserve to be treated better than that? Or is it to be amazed that there's anybody especially God, who treats you as well as they do anyways. I think Jesus probably had in mind Psalm 37 as he says these words. Let me just read three verses to you. Psalm 37, 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. But the meek, verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant Peace. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. This word land or, or earth in Hebrew was connected to, to not just physical land, but to all the kingdom promises given to Israel. And I think the idea here, that, that when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, is that the promises of the kingdom of peace and dwelling upon it forever are for those who conduct themselves in meekness. Why would this be the case? Because those who are amazed that God and people would treat them as well as they do and not how they deserve... Treat people gently. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. That's so true. We should be amazed that anybody would treat us as well as they do. Everyone, I mean, it's easy to treat people nice and gentle who treat you nice and gentle. What about those in the world who don't? What about those in the world who you consider yourself to be treated the worst by? Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to, to, to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Notice that Jesus' motivation for mercy towards our enemies is the Father's mercy towards us. 
It is those who receive mercy, who give mercy, which we'll look at next week, because those words are so simple. Notice there's no change in language in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Someone once said, you never run the risk of being too gentle. You never run the risk of being too gentle. Why is meekness so important in the kingdom? Well, I'll just point out three reasons real quick. Number one, meekness matters because it requires gospel obedience. Or gospel obedience requires meekness, rather. You can't obey the gospel and lack meekness. Secondly, it's essential for gospel witness. Notice that immediately what follows the Beatitudes is Jesus' statement in verse 13 that you are the salt of the earth and then you are the light of the world. Meekness in a world that thinks belligerence will get you what you want is gospel witness. It is salt and light. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, it gives glory to God. What happens to those who are meek? What happens to those who inherit the earth? Well, I think the next verse is the result, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so fourthly, the fourth way to happiness is simply do what's right. Do what is right. That's what the word righteousness means, after all. It is simply doing what is right. The meek not only do what's right, they want what's right. Notice the imagery here, though, that blessed are are those, happy are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I wonder if this verse is lost on me. I read a story of Roman soldiers uh, during a particular, not Roman soldiers, it was, uh, it was a company, it was during World War I, I don't know why I said Roman soldiers, I think it was during World War I, a company of uh, New Zealand and maybe Austrian soldiers and one other group that, that had been pursuing a, a band uh, of whatever that they were trying to hunt down in, in the, uh, the Dead Sea region of Israel for days without water. I mean, lips swollen, beet red. I, 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 don't even, I can't even understand all of the effects of what they were going through. I'm not a medical doctor, but they went through, through this for days without water. I think some of them were, uh, were if they didn't even die, they were in, in incredibly bad shape from a lack of water. And then upon finding and getting water and being restored, one of the companies of the captain pointed to this idea and said, well, I guess we've just learned a biblical lesson of what it means to thirst for righteousness. When was the last time you were that thirsty or that hungry? I think this is the heart of fasting in the New Testament, by the way. To to remind us of of what it's like to be hungry. Not just to miss one meal, but to be really, really hungry. Desperately hungry. To have your thoughts consumed with, with hunger or thirst. That is what Jesus is pointing us to here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what is what is right. This, this deep, deep, consuming thought that you need food or water or righteousness. Notice what he, what he doesn't tell us to thirst for. He doesn't tell us to thirst for knowledge. 
He doesn't tell us to thirst for emotion-filled singing. He doesn't tell us to thirst for cool services, better classes, better sermons, better songs, better pastors, better whatever. All those are good things. He tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, this is what Mary, pregnant with Christ when she met Elizabeth, declared in Luke 1, 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The question before us, though, is what is righteousness? Is this an external thing? We want righteousness in the world. The prosperity preacher says that that righteousness is just a matter of faith that results in money and healing. The liberation theologian says, hey, righteousness is just, it's a legal matter. It's, 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 it's a, a lack of, of people being in subjection. It's a lack of slavery and oppression. It's political and racial freedom. The nationalist says, hey, it's just freedom from the tyranny of a government. What does Jesus mean when he says that we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I would return to uh, John Stott, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and to Martin Luther, both incredibly helpful. Listen to John Stott. Again, this is rather long, so bear with me. He says, it would be a mistake, I suppose, however, that the biblical word righteousness means only a right relationship with God on the one hand and a moral righteousness of character and conduct on the other. It's not just about how I behave, And my relationship with God. He says, For biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in law courts, integrity in business dealing, and honor in home and family affairs. Now, before I continue reading, I would remind you that his definition of social justice as he pens this is 30 years old. Okay? If that doesn't mean anything to you, that's great. If you know what I'm talking about, please bear that in mind. Thus, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing and righteous to God. See, righteousness has to do not only with how we behave towards God and towards others, but it has to do with how we conduct ourselves in the church and how we relate to the poor and the oppressed and the enslaved and even how we relate to the lost. Martin Luther, several hundreds years ago, before any notion of modern social justice, said this, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert or I would say into an adult Bible class or a growth group or the church. It is not to crawl in somewhere and hide, but to run out if that is where you have been. And to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body and to wager everything you have and can do. A hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated. One that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right. Despising everything that hinders this end. If you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. Luther's right. A hunger and thirst for righteousness must send us out into the world and into the church and into the word. And into prayer. 
It's not only how I relate to God and how I conduct myself, but how the world I live in is conducted. Revelation 7, 16 and 17 shows us when this desire will be satisfied, and it's never going to happen in this lifetime. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, the sun shall, uh, nor, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That hunger and thirst cannot be satisfied until heaven, and nor should it be. It must be one that we don't try and quench, but one that we embrace and lean into, that, that defines not only how we conduct ourselves, but how we relate to the world around us. So what do we do here? Well, I want to give two distinct challenges, and I want to divide the room in half today. Not physically, I want to divide the room b- between those over 40 and those under 40. And I'm going to step on some toes. I'll do my best to be gentle. But I'm just going to warn you, it's a pretty stiff challenge. If you are over 40, I have a question for you. Do you fault quote-unquote young people because they want the church to have a cause in the world? Do you chalk it up to youthful enthusiasm? Do you look at them and say, oh, someday that passion will will fail? Do you look at them and say, well, we don't need to worry about those social matters so much. We just need better Sunday school classes and another Bible study. My challenge to you is to, to learn something from them. And to go out, to get out of this place, and not only this place, but the circles that are all solely connected with other believers, and to do what you can to make the world pious if you can't make the whole world pious. But I'm going to tell you, there is only one way to do that, and that is to tell people who Jesus is. There is no righteousness that matters apart from the knowledge of Christ. It doesn't profit the world anything to gain our political or moral agenda and lose their souls. If you are over 40 and you have found that most of your friendship circles are inside of the church, change that. Change that. Get out there and show people what Jesus is like. Take some of those friends in your circles and bring them with you. I read a great analogy the other day. Forgive me, I'm going to beg a little extra time of you if I may. Because if you asked me this morning, what did you do yesterday? And I said, oh, well, we did some yard work. And then last night, a little spaceship landed in my backyard and, and a green man got out and invited me into his uh, spaceship to go to Mars and have dinner. You'd be like, this is the guy who's going to get in our pulpit? That's what the world hears when we tell them that God became a person who never sinned, who was born of a virgin, who died in our place, was buried and resurrected. 
They go, those people are nuts. But you know what happens when you hang out? Go join some club of a bunch of people who believe in aliens. Spend a bunch of time with them. And what happens to the idea of a spaceship landing in your backyard and taking you somewhere? Impossible thoughts become plausible. Right? The impossible becomes plausible when you are shoulder to shoulder with people who genuinely believe that to be true. Get out of the church, take some friends with you, go befriend people who don't know Jesus, let them see your salt and your light, let them see the upside downness, invite them to know who Jesus is, but understand that it is not just your words once in sharing the gospel, but your presence in their life regularly that will lead them to a place where the gospel all of a sudden goes from impossible to plausible. Get out of the church. Not entirely, unless the church is the entirety of your friendship circles. Spend some time in places outside of the church. And if you are under 40, and you want the church to have a cause... You want the church to make a difference in the world. You want the church to seek righteousness and justice in the world. My question for you is this. Are you willing to participate in the cause that you want the church to have? Because most often, what I hear from people under 40, when, when I say things like, Man, you want the church to make a difference? How can you make a difference? The response is, I'm too busy. In terms of righteousness and seeking righteousness in the world, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And if you fault the church for not having the social cause that you want it to have, but you're not engaged in that social cause... Don't throw stones. If it's something that you think the church must do, then realize that the church is not an organization, it's not a building, it's not a place, it's a gathered people. And if you know Jesus and you're here, you're part of the church, which means it's not everybody else's responsibility, it's your responsibility. And so my challenge to you is the same. Get out and do something. And if you're so busy that you don't have time to do that, do something less. Do something less. In closing, and I'll stop this now, but so, so much of this is how we reach 505. It's how we accomplish this vision. And I, I know this has been a difficult thing for us to, to grab a hold of as a church because it's not a program. It's not an activity. There's not an agenda and a plan and I show up and I put my name next to a slot and this is the thing I do. Those are fine things. We'll have some of those along the way. But what we're asking you to do, the, the sum and substance of reaching 500 families in five years is for all of us to get out of the church and befriend people who don't know Jesus. Make friends of strangers so that strangers might become family in Christ. 
go, go rub shoulders with people who think the gospel is impossible so that by your presence in their life, God might use you to help them see that the gospel is not only plausible, but that it's true. We've got to get out there and live in these ways so that we can be salt and light. Because as we're people out there who love righteousness and who act in meekness, it makes us salty. It makes us light-filled. And if you don't know how to conduct yourself in those relationships, I would tell you two things. Number one, walk right over here. Uh, as critical as I've been in classes, forgive me for that this morning. I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical. Join the Brennans in their class, second hour. Because this is what they're talking about. It's what they've lived on the mission field, and it's a gift they're giving to us to share their experiences and what they've gleaned and learned through their time in the field. And one of the things you'll see, this will be available in their class today, and it'll be available on the uh, Welcome uh, Center uh, countertops as you head out is this little sheet uh, and and I want you to take this and I want you to do something with it and we've we've worked really 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 hard to make sure that there's nothing about this that resembles a checklist that you can't just be like introduce myself to my neighbor check invited him to church check told him about Jesus check oh, they didn't like that I'm moving on what we've tried to do is create touch points here how do I know if a relationship is developing? There's an opportunity up here for you to put names of people. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Who knows? And I would encourage you to use this as a prayer card to be praying for them. But, but it, it, there's kind of three categories. Moving from strangers to friends and then from friends to family of God. And there's just some touch points along the way that you can ask yourself of, of whether or not this relationship is developing. If you're like, man, the idea of going and striking up a friendship with somebody I don't know who doesn't know Jesus, I feel a little lost there. This will help and that class will help. I would highly, highly encourage both. Lastly, I would say, what if you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not meek. I'm the belligerent, abrasive. I'm the, I'm the squeaky wheel. I'm easily irritable. That's been on my mind a lot as I've been preparing this sermon. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not easily irritated. What if I'm that easily irritated person? Then I would, at risk of sounding like a meme, say, you need more Jesus. You just need to, to spend time in God's Word seeing who Jesus is. It's not a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of thing where, where you're just like, well, I'm going to work hard at being more meek and I can do this. I'm, I'm, after all, an American. It's not how this works. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. In other words, get in your Bible and worship because when you see that he is lovely and when you see that he is worthy and when his loveliness and worthiness become loveliness and worthiness to you, you will become like what you behold. We all, always become like what we behold. TikTok, YouTube, Netflix, all included. We become what we behold. And so how do we become like Him? We behold Him. We see Him. We dig into our words every day until our, our, His word We dig into his word every day until we worship. Until we orient our worship properly. Lord, make us worshipers, proper worshipers, who see that you are lovely and worthy and delight ourselves in you. And Lord, give us great boldness and willingness and obedience to get out into the world to know unbelievers, to to show them the salt and light of your kingdom and to invite them to be part of it. We pray that you would use us to invite others in. But Lord, let it be our upside-downness and our happiness in that upside-downness that leads others to you as we spend time with them. That you might be glorified and worshiped, and that additional people might come and join the chorus of worshipers called the church as we worship in spirit and in truth. And we ask it all for your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of the lost in Jesus' name. Amen.